0: podcast platforms be sure to give me a follow on facebook instagram and tiktok as well at matt stocks dj that way you can keep up to date with all of my live q a dates my dj performances and of course who's coming up on the show as well but without further ado let's crack on with the show shall we here we go
1: hey i'm ryan
2: reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot
0: I've been listening to a few interviews and stuff that you've done over the years, and just the story of your life and the the obstacles and the hurdles and the struggles, and and to now be at a point where you're a grandfather, it must be an amazing, incredible feeling.
3: Well, if uh, I was a hippie in the '60s, so if you just take a, a broader view of that and say to yourself, how many hippies? From the 60s, who really lived the 60s, thought they would be around today, you know, 50 years later, I would say a small amount. And of the remaining members of my various social groups back in those days, who were heavy-duty hippie drug dealer, drug drug users, all that, um, there are not that many of us left. And so uh, when we're together, we marvel at our uh, level of survivability. We all do. We all kind of go, "How come you're still here? No. Why are you here?" Uh, and that is a that that is a novel. It could be a novel because the stories of the survivors are harrowing, and the story of those who didn't survive is is more harrowing. And that has nothing to do with Twisted Sister. Nothing. No. That is all before. You know, that's all before Twisted Sister, you know, that I came to England uh, as a hippie in 1971, right? Summers in the summer of 71, you know, what, I came, what
0: brought you over here then that at that time?
3: Uh, I was, um, I was dealing drugs in America and, and being very successful at it, made a lot of money and decided I would go to Europe and deal drugs too. Cause I heard things were great over in Amsterdam. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so, right, right, right. So
3: I mean, you know, I uh the there was a thing called the Youth Fair which is a low budget airfare to Europe mm-hmm. f- for any student in America. $200 round trip. Um so you were was,
0: was was dealing drugs full time. That was your full time well, occupation no, for a I while. I was
3: I was no, I was I was a a high school I was a, a musician trying to be in bands. I was a, a anti-war protester civil rights protester, a student, you know, I was, I got involved in heavy, a lot of politics and I was, and I uh, was, was, uh, was, was dealing drugs in order to to, um, pursue my rock and roll dreams. It wasn't, it wasn't to pursue a drug dealing. It was just like, it was easy money. And I was able to buy guitars and amplifiers and go to the shows that I wanted to go to. So I was able to do the things that you guys read about uh, with people my age with such uh, jealousy because uh, living in New York City, I'm imagining living in London at the same time we used to do the same thing. On a weekly basis, uh, you could just go to a, a, the, the Fillmore East which is a, you know, a rock theater, 10 minutes yeah, from my legendary house. Place, yeah. And every week, and I no exaggeration, Led Zeppelin and Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane and Jimi Hendrix and Chicago and Leon Russell and Delaney and Bonnie and cream and um, Jethro Tull and 10 years after, you know, uh, Janice Joplin and every week they would come and play for $3 for a weekend ticket. And if you couldn't afford the three bucks for a dollar, you saw them in central park during the, during the weekdays at the Schaefer festival for a buck. And if you couldn't afford the dollar, you just sat outside because it was so loud. It didn't matter. You could just hear it anyway. All right. So this was the constant feeding of rock and roll at an incredibly exalted level. And if you were a musician, you could go and see your your rock idols on a nightly basis. For like three bucks, four bucks, five bucks. I mean, they each did four shows a weekend. So if you really wanted to see Jimi Hendrix four times, it's $12. See four concerts, you know, or Led Zeppelin. Or Iron Butterfly, or the Youngbloods, or BB King and Albert King, or Freddie King, or Taj Mahal. I mean, it,
0: it is the stuff of legend, as you say, isn't it? And you, yeah. I'm imagining, saw literally all of them repeatedly.
3: Yeah, all. Of them. And you didn't think about it.
0: Yeah, because it was just so what if, was around, right? If
3: you didn't, ma- if you didn't make it that week, you saw him a month later. Rod Stewart. You know, I saw Rod Stewart's first show with Jeff Beck, first show with the face, uh, for- first time that stewart played with the jeff beck group at the fulmore was a famous show he was so terrified he was singing behind the pa system like you the band was playing shapes of things and you didn't see him what because Where of, is he? because of stage fright he was stage fright and jeff beck went and kicked him in the ass ran back to the, to, <laughs> to the out, behind then. the pa and kicked him in the ass so he would come out yeah i mean you tell people these stories they look at you like you got two heads and 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 i'm like no man that's just how it was It was never a big deal. It was just the way it was. The Who would play a week there. Crosby, Stills and Nash would play a week there. And if you missed them, they're back in three months anyway. So it didn't really matter. You know, it really just didn't matter. Um, It was everywhere. So then, then, then you had the Fillmore's, the Fillmore, and the Carnegie Hall, and they held three thousand people. And then you had these little clubs. You know how the Marquee is the Marquee, right? So we had. These two restaurants called Steve Paul's scene and Ungano's. Uh Steve Paul's scene was a bar, Ungano's was an Italian restaurant. Ungano's was on 70th Street off of Broadway. And Steve Paul's scene was on 8th Avenue and 51st Street. Now, imagine all those groups that I've just told you about. Jimmy, Yard, all those. Imagine you missed them at the Fillmore. You miss them at Central Park. Well, okay, a big so show. Yeah, it's the big shows, you walk into Steve Paul's scene and they're jamming on stage because British groups in particular like little t- dark places, you know? Yep. British British rock stars, no matter how big they are, no matter how insane their life is, there's two things. They love little pubs and they love their little gardens and their mansions.
0: Yeah,
3: I don't care if it's John Bonham. I don't care how much heroin <laughs> no, they're
0: doing. Never true a word was spoken.
3: They come back to England. And they're in their little garden. They want to just work on their little garden because their fathers had little gardens, and that's what they do, you know. And that's what they do. And so these big groups would come to New York, and and either they play the Madison Square Garden or the Fillmore. And then on a, on a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night, they are not going to stick around their hotel room. They're going to go to these two little bars, Steve Paul's, scene and gano's and They'll just jam all night long because they like hanging out in dark little places. So if you knew that, like Jimmy, like the McCoys, you know, the song, hang on Sloopy. Of course. Okay, I so love it. The, yeah. Yeah. So, so the McCoys, the McCoys became the house band at Steve Paul's scene. So on any given night at Steve Paul's scene in New York city, Jimi Hendrix is there or, or Jeff Beck was there or Jimmy on any given night. And so the McCoys would be on stage. And um, they're the house band. So if you want to jam with the house band, you get up and you play with, with Rick Derringer. So, you know, Johnny Winter, of the guitar course. player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the famous Johnny Winter and album. That's a super famous group. Well, the Johnny Winter and was going to be Johnny Winter and the McCoys because Johnny Winter hung out at Steve Paul's scene and loved the McCoys. And so he said to Rick Derringer, let's merge but Johnny Winter's record label did not want the word McCoys on an album cover because to them it was bubblegum pop music from this, you know. Hang like the Archies Snoopy. and stuff like that, yeah. So they said, just call Johnny Winter and. So it's Johnny Winter and the McCoys. The point being is that Rick Derringer had an incredibly great reputation as being a phenomenal guitar player. And so everybody wanted to play with Rick Derringer. So Jimmy was always playing with Rick Derringer. This was a nightly Occurrence. So Angano's was a little Italian restaurant on 70th Street. i give you an idea of what it was like. 1969, Blind Faith is playing at Madison Square Garden on their only tour to promote the Blind Faith album. Who are the opening bands for Blind Faith? Free and Spooky Tooth. First time in America. Okay. So, having seen cream uh, two years earlier open for Wilson Pickett, which I did. I saw the cream and the who opened for Wilson Pickett and, and Mitch Ryder and the Detroit wheels at a, uh, at a show in, on uh, at the RKO at the RKO theater on West six on West and East 60th street. And they were the opening acts. They played two songs each anyway. Cream then goes through its thing. It breaks up. 69, Blind Faith comes out, and they're doing their tour. I go to that show at the Garden. Okay. The very next day, Angano's is in my neighborhood. I'm walking up the street with my friend David. We walk by Angano's. Angano's is an Italian restaurant at 210 West 70th Street.
0: Tiny little place as well, right? Sorry? Tiny little place as well. Yeah,
3: tiny little place. Like an Italian restaurant on 210 West 70th Street. And, uh, but it's a rock club now. But we were 16, so we're not allowed to get in. You had to be 17 or 18. And we noticed on the side by the front door, it said, Tonight's guest artists, Dr. John, Free, and Spooky Tooth, written in little plastic letters that you would see in front of churches that Jesus saves, that kind Mm -hmm. of thing. Except it says, Dr. John, Free, and Spooky Tooth in little white letters. And I look at my friend David. And I said, man, I I wish we could go there. He goes, we can go. I said, how? He said, my mother knows the manager of Free and Spooky Tooth. And and he told my mother that um, if any of his bands ever play, mention his name and we can get in. So we walk in the front door of Angano's. And um, there's Nicky Angano. I mean, Angano is an Italian name. You want to picture what this guy probably looks like? Like a member of The Sopranos. You yeah, know yeah, I mean?
0: yeah. Something out of a Scorsese movie. Yeah,
3: he's got a, he's got a, he's got a cigar, <laughs> and a pinky ring. He's reading the racing form, you know, and he looks at me and my friend David, and here we are, two sixteen-year-old hippies. And he goes, "What do you guys want?" And my friend goes, "My mother's name is Charlotte Schiff, and she said that she knows D. Anthony, and that if anyone in the arcs are playing, we can get in." And he goes, "Your mother knows D. Anthony?" <laughs> yeah. He goes. We'll see about that. And he goes. He goes in the back, and I'm thinking, David, your mother better know DeAnthony.
0: And <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna get we're whacked.
3: Gonna, <laughs> we're gonna get whacked, you know. And out comes DeAnthony. He goes, "Who are you?" Frank goes, "My mother's name is Charlotte Schiff." And he's like, "That's a horse of a different color." Like all of a sudden, everything changed, you know. So he takes us in to the club. Now you have to understand this, right? This is 1969. Ungano's. I don't even think there's a, st- I don't believe there was a stage. Right, right. And played on the floor. Yeah. So we walk in on We'd never been in there before, you know, and this was 16 years old. Oh my God. We walk in and free is playing on the floor. So it's Buzz, you know, Burrell and, and Andy Frazier and, and Paul Kossoff and Paul Rogers, and they're playing on the floor. And with a pole, you know, like a, a, the pole that holds the club ceiling up is in between Paul Rogers and Paul Kossoff. And Anthony walks us right up to him and he puts his arms around. Him. He goes, what do you think of my band? And I'm like, oh, we saw them last night at the garden. He goes, good. Well, you came at a good time. It's a private party. Enjoy yourself. Enjoy your night. So we're standing there. I'm literally a foot away from Paul Kossoff and a foot away from Paul Rogers. And they do their set. And David and I are kind of shell-shocked. And we sit down at a long table. Imagine if the marquee had tables, like long tables, okay? But imagine it's the marquee with some long tables. So David and I are sitting at this long table at the head of the table, like really close to the front where this stage area was. And uh, we look behind us, and I don't know, there's 20 people there, maybe 20 people, something like that. And uh, and Nikki Angano gets up. He goes, Well, I got some bad news. Uh, Spooky Tooth isn't feeling good tonight. So, anybody want to get up and jam, get up and jam. So, this is what happens Stevie Winwood gets up on keyboards. Dr. John gets up on piano. Rick Gretsch from Blind Faith gets on bass. Jim Keltner from the Delaney and Bonnie band, gets up on drums. Chris Wood gets up on sax. Delaney and Bonnie get up on vocals and guitar. And Eric Clapton gets up. And they played for three hours to me and David and 20 other people in the room. And we're sitting there going, do you believe what we're seeing? The point of all this, matt is this is how life was okay this is what it was like this was just another night of rock and roll so to give you a finally the answer about what i'm doing in england with this kind of (laughs) constant feeding of this dream world after years of this i got bored of being in new york city and it was a youth fair to Europe, $200 round trip. So I flew to Amsterdam to meet uh, my friend. And I made a plan to meet a different friend of mine in Amsterdam. And uh, then we went, I hitched, I hitched across Europe and wound up in London um, on Kensington church street dropped off by someone. So we hitched rides across took ferries and hitched rides and rides. And someone just dropped me and my knapsack off on Kensington church street. And uh, never been in London before and looked up and looked around at the Kensington market, which was there at the time, 500 boutiques selling platform shoes back in 71. Um, um, uh, The Royal Kensington hotel, I think, you know, by Hyde park is on the corner and I'm, I'm saying, Oh my God, I'm in England. I'm in England. I'm in England. And I hear this music in the air. What is it? There's a free concert in Hyde Park that day. Chris Spedding. Do you know who Chris Spedding is? The I don't think part? so, no. Legendary guitarist from back in the day. Okay. I recognize
0: that name, though.
3: Well, rumor has it he actually played all the guitar parts on the Sex Pistols record.
0: Right, that's okay. where I've heard that name. Yeah.
3: Yeah, he's pretty legendary. Anyway, he was there was a free concert. So uh, someone told me there was a youth hostel <clears throat> up the street, which I went to. Dropped my bags off, went to Hyde Park and spent, um, you know, weeks in London. And in the summer of 71 in London, what was it like in London in 71? Well, the biggest albums of the year that summer were Who's Next? Rod Stewart's Every Picture Tells a Story, Rolling Stone's Sticky Fingers. And the biggest track of the summer was Move On Up by Curtis Mayfield. And you walked around London, you walked to all the boutiques and all you heard was, rock and roll blasting out of every record shop every restaurant there was the uh, spaghetti factory the great those wimpy bars everywhere the great american disaster which you don't know is a well known restaurant with great american disasters in uh headlines of great american disasters like the henberg disaster and this all over the walls and the and the british waiters were taught to talk like new yorkers (laughs) so they would be very rude to you right in a you New go, York
0: accent, or, or yeah, just, fake New yeah, York accent. Right. They go, "What do you
3: want? What do you want?" <laughs> I, I got like a burger. You want a burger? <laughs> what do you want on the burger? He wants fries, like fake them. So that was my um, that was my intro, and it was it was a wondrous uh summer, of seventy one.
0: A lot of that time period for me, I've been losing myself in throughout this COVID time because. Obviously you can't go out and do things at the moment but I th- I feel like for me what that you know those stories of New York and London that you just shared then it feels like for me such a far removed ancient magical time obviously it wasn't that long ago chronologically but that world just seems so long gone as someone who lived it and went through it does that world seem long gone to you does New York seem like a completely different city now to the one you grew up in as well
3: yeah you know um people comment about my ability to remember things, you know, in specificity, like I do. Um, So it's a blessing and a curse. Yeah. Because I remember it so well and I miss it a lot, but I'm also life goes on. I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, really what choice is there that it didn't happen? You know, so I go back in my day, I could see the Rolling Stones for three dollars, you know, back in my day. I mean, what's the point of it? I just
0: well, at least you I'm, got to do it, right? That's what I always think is at least you were there and you experienced it, because so many yeah, didn't.
3: I did, and it was an incredibly enriching time. And 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 the important thing is that many people want to know about it. Yeah. So because there's an endless fascination with people who lived it, and people who still lived it could tell the stories about it. And people want to know about it. So if people didn't want to know about it, it wouldn't really matter. But they want to know about it. And so I enjoy telling those stories because those stories um, inform me of why I am the way I am. You know, I cannot tell you how many nights I would go to the Fillmore, see a band, and then go home at 3 o'clock in the morning, put the guitar around my shoulder, stand in front of the mirror, and pretend I was the guy I just saw that night. Yeah, yeah. So I so the first time I did that was when I saw Iron Butterfly. Um, I thought Eric Braun was the guitar player. He was a 17-year-old kid. Here he had an album that sold two million copies. I don't care whether you like Iron Butterfly, don't like Iron Butterfly, it doesn't matter. Point is he epitomized what a rock star looked like to me. So I I held my guitar up and stood in front of the mirror and tried to be like Eric Braun. And the next time I went, uh, it was Henry Vestine from can't heat. I thought I was Henry Vestine from can't heat. Then I thought I was Jerry Garcia from the grateful dead. Then I thought I was Dwayne Allman from the Allman brothers. And I thought I was Jimmy page. And I thought I was Jimmy Hendrix. And uh, I, or I thought I was Terry Kath from Chicago and on and on and on and on. I'll tell you what's really fascinating for me. Uh, if, if what I have told you, it doesn't make you sick enough. Um, in my record collection, I decided one day I was, one day I was looking at, I was in a flea market and I found an album, Elvis Presley live mass and square garden, June 10th, 1972. Okay. An album. I was at that show. So I went, wow, I'm going to buy that album. Cause I was at that show. And I remember the show sucked and I want to see if I was correct in my memory of why I didn't like the show. So I bought the album and I, I, <clears throat> and I'm looking at the album cover. I'm thinking, you know, John, you've been to a lot of famous shows that have been made into concerts. Let's review. I was at Rolling Stones, get your ya-ya's out recording 1969 Madison square garden. I was there. Jimi Hendrix, new year's Eve, Fillmore East band of gypsies. I was there. The band recording rock of ages of the Academy of music, 1972. I was there. John Mayall recording turning point Fillmore East. I was there. Weavers, Carnegie Hall in 1963, first show I ever went to. I was there. I have albums of shows of artists. That, that are I went iconic to live that albums. That are iconic live albums. And I was actually at. That is actually more impressive to me than all the other shows. I can run down the thousands of shows I saw, which were thousands. The fact that at least six of them have been immortalized on vinyl as being amongst the greatest shows ever. That was kind of impressive to me. I have now The Grateful Dead are, you know, you can argue that they're either one of the greatest live bands in the world or the worst, you know, depending on where you stand on The Grateful Dead. And I and I get or, it.
0: or what drugs you're on. Or oh, not on. <laughs> well,
3: you know, I'm famous for saying I saw them 27 times, 26 times on acid. It was the greatest band I'd ever seen. On the 27th time I went straight and said, What the fuck was I thinking? This is the worst music I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> But having said that, there's uh, two Grateful Dead live shows that have been immortalized recently on album, and I was at both of them. Amazing. So, I mean, who was the band that
0: showed you like I can do that? Obviously, we all have the bands that inspire us, but was there one band or performer that you know perhaps showed you the light in terms of that's attainable?
3: You know, that's a great question. That's attainable. That's a really, you know, that's an interesting question because um, I, I fantasized about being a rock star, but the mechanics of becoming one seemed so elusive that I can't say that I saw that thing and said that, you know, I'm I'm famous for saying I saw the Beatles on TV and I wanted to become a rock star. That's Ed, Ed Sullivan. That, that's the old quote that we all use, guys my age. I yeah. saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, and the truth is, I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, and I went, "Wow, that that's great." And the truth, the funny thing about that is, is that on that night, which what's today? Today's February 9th? 7th, I
0: think. I don't know. Yeah, no, February February eighth
3: today's the eighth okay yeah. so it was tomorrow i think is the anniversary right of, of ed sullivan's show the ninth i believe well the point being is that um if you had tapped me on the shoulder at that very moment that i was watching the beatles in 1964 and went oh my god that's when i want to be a rock star and in in our limited scope of what we thought rock stars would mean Screaming girls, lots of money, and a gold record, right? That's it, a gold record, gold record, whatever the hell that meant. If someone had said to me at that moment, you will be a rock star, Mr. French, and you will have a gold record. And I'd go, wow, when? In a couple of years? Mind you, I'm 11 years old. And they go, no, 20 years and six months from now, you'll have your first gold record, (laughs) which is what it took 20 years and six months from the time I saw them. It was in August of of eighty four that Stay Hungry Want gold. I would have said twenty years and six months for a gold. Record. I'm out. I'm out. I'm done. Well, so that kind of, so- that
0: kind of leads me beautifully into the next thing. I'd love to talk to you about because for me, there's such tenacity and drive, not just in the story of Twisted Sister, but in you know your personal journey. Where do you think that comes from in you? That work ethic, that determination. That tenacity, was it passed on from your parents? Was it something you picked up for yourself? Have you thought about where it perhaps comes from?
3: Yeah, and I can't trace any of it. And I, I don't mean to be glib. No, not at all. I don't mean to be glib about it. My parents are very you smart. Are, you They're either good. know or you don't, don't you? <laughs> yeah, my parents are very, very smart people. Not particularly. Um, my father was a salesman, and um, my mother was a, a political consultant. She was a brilliant political consultant, but they weren't rich at all. They're middle class and um i don't know i really don't know because if you would have asked my teachers um did i exhibit any personality trait that would have that would have shown that i had this ability to be to do this they would have said are you kidding me <laughs> No, he fuck. doesn't
0: apply himself at all like no, that kind I, of classic
3: he's a screw-up <laughs> man he's a fucking drug addict no so i i i don't know i don't know but um you know, I'm either the smartest guy in the world, or I'm the dumbest guy in the world. Either I was smart enough to understand this and take a long time or dumb enough not to know when to quit. And, um, and I don't know which one that I don't know which one it is. And while you go, well, that's a humble thing to say. Uh, there certainly is enough. The, the, the pathway could have gone either way and a number of occasions. And changed my life completely. You know, I and and
0: you could have thrown in the towel on a number of occasions. A
3: number of occasions. You know, I I recently interviewed um, Michael Lamonico, who's a celebrity chef in New York, and uh, he owns one of my favorite restaurants. And he's a guitar collector as well, and he's very well known. But he's most well known for the fact that he owned Windows on the World, which is the restaurant on the 110th floor of the World Trade Center. And on the morning. Of, the, of 9-11, his wife reminded him his glasses needed fixing. And as he walked into the building, he had a choice to make. If he went to the right, he would have gone on the elevator that took him up to his restaurant, and he would have died. If he went to the left, he would have gone to the optometrist to have his glasses fixed. He went to the left to get his glasses fixed. And that's why he's alive.
0: I, I've so- thought about that in my life a few times, these tiny little decisions you make that have such a seismic impact on the overall you know, story of your life. We've kind of touched on something there that I'd love to, if you're all right with it, jump in on whilst we we're on it. It was something I wanted to maybe get around to later. But as, as you've mentioned it there, the the day itself, What what's your memories of that day? Were you in New York?
3: Oh, yeah. Uh, my memories, uh, we covered that the New York steel, um, uh, DVD. We talked about the fact that, the uh, that, uh, it's impossible to be a New Yorker and not be affected because we are all from New York. I mean, I was born in Manhattan. Eddie O'Jade was born in the Bronx. AJ Perro was born on Staten Island and D and Mark were both born in Queens. So we're New York city guys. Um, on the morning of nine 11, I was visiting a friend in Westchester. And I was taking a train, the Metro North, to visit my friend. <clears throat> and I'm on 125th Street train station. Weather's perfect. Blue sky. Beautiful day. My wife calls me and says, you've seen the news. A plane hit the World Trade Center. I said, how do you hit the World Trade Center on a day like this? I mean, it's gorgeous out. Or maybe it's a little plane. So I get on the train. Are you familiar with Manhattan at all? Do you, Do
0: you know what? I've ne- Considering I'm fascinated with the place and I love New York, I've never been ever. Okay. I I need to go and want to, but no, at this stage I haven't.
3: All right. So to go to Westchester from where I was standing, you get on this train, which is the northern part of Manhattan, and within five minutes you've crossed over Manhattan into the Bronx. And Manhattan is an island surrounded by 30, uh, 17 bridges and tunnels. So you either go over a bridge or you go under a tunnel to get out. So I'd gone over the bridge and and now we're the so I, I'm hearing this report from the conductors, walkie-talkie, that the World Trade Center was hit. The train takes off and the train starts moving up and as it crosses a bridge to get into Yonkers, which is I would rather get into the 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 Bronx, which is the next the borough north of Manhattan. They announced that the second plane hit. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, this is not a mistake. It's an attack. And if I don't get back to Manhattan now, I'm never going to get back into Manhattan. Like, I have to get back into Manhattan. So the train stops. I run downstairs onto the street. And all I know is that I have to get into a cab and tell the cab driver to take me back to Manhattan, which means he has to cross another bridge over to get me back in without telling him that these buildings were attacked because he'll never drive me. So hopefully he doesn't know the buildings are attacked. It happened so quickly. Within a minute of the uh, second plane hitting, I hear it. I run downstairs. I get into a gypsy cab. You you know, a gypsy gypsy cab is a taxi that's not licensed. They're called gypsies. And you just pay the guy privately. There's no, they don't have, they're not affiliated with the, the taxi industry. They're not painted yellow. They're just kind of guys who are on their own. And regular cab drivers hate them because they get in the way of making their money, right? So I jump into a gypsy cab and I scream at the guy, Manhattan, 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 meaning he knows he's got to go down the West. He knows he has to get on this particular highway to get me over a bridge. And he looks at me and he goes, why are you yelling at me? I said, my daughter's sick in school. I have to pick her up, which, you know, sounds plausible. And actually, I wanted to go get Samantha because she was in class. So he, uh, he I get in the cab and he races down this particular highway and he gets across this particular bridge. And now we're on the borough of Manhattan. So worse comes to worse. I'm on the borough of Manhattan. I can get down there one way or the other. And I said, uh, but I didn't want to tell him what was going on because i didn't want him to stop driving so he starts heading down the west side highway which is a highway that skirts the west side of manhattan and normally it's past rush hour it's pretty clear and i'm looking straight south and i could see a plume of smoke in the southern part of manhattan and what that plume of smoke is that's the towers in flames but if you don't know it you could just think it was a cloud you know, you weren't necessarily looking for it to be anything more than just a cloud. So he's not paying any attention to the fact that this cloud is looming. All I want to do is get as close as I can to my house without him stopping the car and getting off early and having me have to run two miles down. So I just kept thinking to myself as he was driving down this road, there's exits that are coming up. And I keep thinking there's got to be, there's got to be a has got to be cars in the way. It's got to be, it, it, there's going to be a traffic jam. And there was nobody on the road. I don't know why. It was unbelievably eerie. There was no one on the road. And he gets me all the way down to 96th Street, which was where I needed to get out. And he comes off the highway. And I said, and by this point, the cloud was humongous, right? And I, send the, I said, the World Trade Centers have just been hit. <clears throat> and you better get back if you want to get back to... Uh, the Bronx. You better go now because they're going to shut the the, the borough down completely. And I just ran out of the car and I went and picked Sam, Sam up at school. And and this guy, I guess, made it back anyway. Um, my daughter's third grade teacher's husband was killed. Uh, Eddie Ojeda had a sister-in-law and a nephew in both towers. They both got out, luckily. But other than that, everybody knows somebody who died. And um, the next day, I walked downtown to Canal Street, and the city was completely chained off below Canal with army tanks. It looked like a war. It looked like a looked like a Spielberg movie, like a horror movie. Um, smoke was still everywhere. My wife at the time, we were not married. She was on Twenty Third Street. She saw the planes hit. You could see clearly from where she was, people collapsing on the street out of fear panic pain disbelief it was um you know it's one of those things you never forget what was the um the
0: twisted sister kind of series of events around that time as well because i guess you guys teamed up with with anthrax and there's a few other bands eddie trunk put together like a benefit right and yeah was that do you think a very important moment in in the band's healing process, as well.
3: Yeah, it was, and I, I always, am, I'm, I'm torn about it because, um, I, don't, I don't, I didn't need three thousand people to die in order for Twisted Sister to reunite, <laughs> you know. Um, but in truth, two weeks before nine eleven, 11 a documentary on the breakup of the band occurred on VH one, and it was pretty brutal, and it was, um, it showed how the band really hated each other, and I was in England, in fact, I was in Cornwall at the time, because I vacationed in Cornwall, 13 summers, by the way, in Polperro in case you've never been down there that often. That's a beautiful part a, of the country. I've been to Cornwall, 13 summers, beautiful part of the country. And, uh, I called a friend of mine. and said, Oh man, this thing came out in VH1. Oh, you don't want to see it. It's, oh, it's, it's really, really bad. So I came back to New York, um, first week of September and I saw, the, I saw how it was edited and it was pretty brutal. And I said, well, any idea the band would ever get back together is totally squashed now because the way they portrayed us in the doc, in the doc was pretty brutal and kind of left it at that. Um, and then 9-11 happens. And uh, I went down to the Javits Center, which is a convention center in New York City, the next day to volunteer. There's thirty thousand people wrapped around the building, and I walked up to a National Guard guy and I said, "Can I, um, can I volunteer?" And he said, "Are you a uh, doctor, lawyer, ironworker, fireman, retired, military?" Blah, blah 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 blah. No 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 no. He says, "Well, the chances are that they can't use you," and I dejectedly walked up Eleventh Avenue, thinking to myself. My city has been attacked. People I know are dead. And I can't do a fucking thing to help them. And felt really, really depressed. At that point, Eddie Trunk called me and he said, they don't want heavy metal bands at the big fundraiser at the garden because we're too aggressive. They're going to have McCartney and The Who, and blah, blah. they don't want any heavy metal. Bands. He said, but I want to put together something with anthrax. And he's really um, overkill Sebastian Bach. He said, I know that I can't get twisted because I saw the documentary of the H1. And whoa, you guys hate each other.
0: And was that I, true at that time? Was there real animosity there? Or had it been blown oh, out
3: of proportion by the no, media? No, it was a combination of things. I think things are always... You know, we're a family. So on any given day, you love and hate your brothers. Yeah. You know, on any given day, you love or hate them. And uh, the day they interviewed the guys in the band, I think some people just really decided to hate on, instead of love. So, uh, I, I was, I said, I said to Eddie Trunk, "Let me call the guys up." So I called everybody up, and I went, "Look, you know, can we put our shit aside, because?" um Eddie Trunk asked us to raise money for the New York City uh, uh, Police and Fire Department emergency services organizations, and to the credit to the guys in the band, they all went, our problems are nothing compared to this. This is something way bigger. And we'll do whatever we have to do. And so the band agreed to reunite. And we did the show, uh, which is available on a DVD called New York Steel, but you can probably see it on YouTube. And we had a great time. And uh, the British journalist Derek Oliver was at the show. Um, do you know Derek Oliver?
0: No, I don't think Is... so.
3: No. Okay. So back in the day when Kerrang! really was, when so- Sounds Magazine and Kerrang! Magazine ruled, yeah, there was Malcolm Dome.
0: I know Malcolm. Yeah. Right.
3: Um, Howard Johnson, Dante Benuto.
0: Uh, Dante very well. He's a dear friend. Yep.
3: Yeah. Um, so
0: he's, he was one of those guys, the OG scribes.
3: Of those guys. Yeah. 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 Derek was Steve Gett was one. Derek Oliver was one. Um, uh, Jeff Barton, who was the editor of sounds was one. Gary yeah. Bushel. That was all like a, a mafia. Yeah. Yeah. If they, if they loved you, <laughs> you were on the cover of everything. Yeah. If they hated you, you know, no one ever knew who you were. <laughs> you were you know? <laughs> and we were very close to those guys. They were all great. And uh, anyway, the point is that a lot of people saw us and went, like, whoa, whoa. And we got offers to reunite. And that's, that's what brought it back. And you know, that's why that's why
0: we came back, which is a beautiful thing that at least, you know, something positive and, and and meaningful. Well, I imagine a lot of meaningful things came out of that horrible ordeal in time. And I mean, New York as a city. I've spoken to many people about it in the, the weeks and months that followed just an unbelievably heavy time. But it seems to have bound the people of that city in such a way that I think so few other places can truly understand.
3: Well, people can talk about 9-11 all they want. And if you were not in New York City that day, you don't really understand. But, yep. you know, I don't want to make it sound like it's like it's like how your parents talk about the war. They don't want to talk about the war. They saw it. They don't need to talk about it. You know, why do you want to talk about it? I don't want to talk about it. I saw shit you don't want to see. I don't want to talk about it. Uh, it's, it's it's hard. It's hard to talk to people who weren't there, who don't understand it. And yet, you know, people who saw it around the world, you have to remember the the one, the one observation I made about 9 11 was that it was the first time in human history that the simultaneous death of 3,000 people was broadcast live to two billion Americans to two billion people around the world. So two billion people watched in real time yep. the death of 3,000 people. Now. Certainly, 3,000 people have died on a number of occasions in the history of the world many times over. In fact, the tsunami in Phuket, didn't that kill a quarter of a million people in one afternoon? Some, some ridiculous statistic. Okay, but we didn't see it. So you hear about it, and it's abstract. Yeah, You can't even imagine <laughs> what that is like. We don't have films. Of 3,000 people being put to death at Auschwitz. But we have a live video feed of the simultaneous death of 3,000 human beings on 9 11, watched by 2 billion people. So that's a vision that's seared. And if you lived here in New York and you really, I mean, I have uncut videos of the guys jumping out of the building. What I thought was paper. You know, from a distance, it looks like papers coming out. It's not paper. It's guys in white shirts who who decided they'd rather leap to their death than burn alive. So that means you went to work that morning thinking it's a regular morning. An hour later, you're standing by a window saying to yourself, okay, I'm going to die now. It's kind of mind-boggling.
0: Yeah, it's it's unbelievably heavy isn't
3: it yeah it it is and it kind of um makes many other things almost irrelevant you know when when people ask me how i um process my failures you know why don't i let them really crush me it's because i have this really circumspect view of of the universe which is (laughs) the world is going to explode in three billion years when the sun explodes no matter how many Les Pauls exist on the planet and how many Picassos exist, bottom line is that it's all going to be carbonated into ash at some point. And it'll start all over again in another billion years or two billion years. And maybe we'll all look different at that point. But is there a point to sweating it all out? I I don't know. I don't know. It's like we're so infinitesimal in the light of the universe. It almost makes everything seem not worth arguing now doesn't mean you don't fight for things you should believe in but
0: um... i'm with you on that and it's as you say you don't go through life with this reckless carefree you know i don't care about anything attitude the opposite of that everything in this world that you care about means the world to you and you should do everything in your power to fight for that but as you say at the same time it's being able to have that perspective of in the grand scheme of things we're so minuscule so minute so insignificant so really don't try to sweat over or stress over something which is out of your control
3: yeah i mean we're all gonna die we all know that we may not all be able to pick the perfect place in time but and and as you get older that becomes even more um you know, more relevant. You, we started out this conversation by you saying to me, uh, well, you know, you survived all this. How do you process all that? Um, I'm amazed that I'm 68 years old. I mean, I can't even believe it. And considering what I went through and what my friends went through, it's amazing. So uh, I will say this though, the ones who survived, the whole hippie thing. And we're not even talking about the band thing because people probably want to hear stories of the band and, the story about the band, as great as it is, is not as much fun as the story of my my teenage years. To me, I mean, there's yeah. a lot more. That was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Twisted Sister was not sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Well, you at were all.
0: St- you were straight by the time yeah. you started the band, right? Yeah,
3: yeah. And so it wasn't sex, drugs, and rock and roll to me. Twisted Sister was a business proposition, and 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 we had fun, and we played rock and roll. What what it was was it was no sex, no drugs, just rock and roll. That's really what 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 Twisted Sister was. about. Or some sex, no drugs and rock and and
0: loads of rock and roll and
3: loads of rock and roll yeah but it was never (laughs) sex drugs and rock and roll so um but the sex drugs and rock and roll part was part of my life from being 15 to 21 oh my god that was sex drugs and rock and roll that was insane (laughs) that was truly fucking insane i can't even imagine what it would have been like to be high in the band i can't even Hmm. imagine you know was there one
0: event that pushed you to want to get straight
3: Yeah, it was a couple of things. First of all, I took tons of LSD and tons of heroin and a lot of shit. And I almost died on a number of occasions, including murdered. You know, like talk about you make a left or a right. I could have been murdered. A number of occasions I could have been murdered. I I had guns put to me twice. I had knives put to my throat several occasions and because then I did you were stu- dealing drugs by yeah, other I was dealing drugs yeah 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 and then i did stupid shit just death by misadventure wrong place wrong time you know it could have just happened i could have been crushed in an elevator tower smoking a joint a friend of mine grabbed my shirt before i was swallowed up by a gear i could have crushed me and that would have been the end of that you wouldn't be interviewing me and there wouldn't have been a twisted sister so that could have happened so uh you know um uh my girlfriend and best friend were junkies. And, um, and, and, and uh, so as they were ODing constantly on a daily basis on heroin and, and it was dragging my life down to me, I kind of was looking at them going, this is where I'm headed. At this point, this is where I'm headed if I don't stop. So I needed to stop. I really needed to stop. And I needed to say to myself, John, you did enough. How much LSD are you gonna take? How much heroin are you gonna take? How much pot are you gonna smoke? How much drugs are you gonna deal? You, you've done it already, Get get out. And so, uh, you know, it's as I tell my story, which is in my upcoming book called Twisted Business, which will be out in August, hopefully. That's
0: going to be this year, is it? Um, I've heard, yeah. I've been listening to your yeah. podcast. I've heard you mention it yeah. a couple of times. Yeah.
3: yeah on Rosetta, Rosetta books. Uh, so um, is
0: a lot of this early stuff going to be in the book, then the priest yeah. priest twisted years. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Because yeah. they're actually the most fun part. I mean, I, people are going to think, oh, they want to hear the twisted stuff. Twisted stuff was fine twisted's interesting twisted sister certainly is the basis of my business acumen but
0: well a lot of those years have been covered in the documentary as well which is obviously when we first met was to do the q a yeah in london around the That's release right. of that and that that documentary is astounding and you know so interesting to me because the the focus of it really is the the years that led up to stay hungry and and then it kind of ends and obviously you know that was 1984 1985 and it's it's those bar years and the playing the circuits that i think is really where the interest of of certainly the twisted sister story lies because you guys were grinding it out at such a wild i think intersectional time for rock and roll when you had punk kicking off and obviously the big bands that took the glam thing to the mtv generation like motley Crue weren't yet a thing and you guys were frontline, weren't you, sort of straddling the 60s and the 70s on that circuit level, day in, day out for years and years and years?
3: Well, we were a bar band. I say the Twisted Sister wasn't an 80s metal band. We were a 70s bar band. The 70s bar bands had a whole different ethic. It was a work ethic. Yes. Um, But also there's four eras of Twisted Sister that most people don't really think about. And there's, there's, the, there's the bar days, you know, the early days. There's the video years, you know, of the yep. big stuff. There's the years that we were dark, for 12 years. That was fascinating. And then there was the reunion years. So there's really four chapters to the band's existence. And, um, um, and now it's the post-reunion years. Yeah. You know, and the post-reunion years are also interesting because uh, music licensing has taken over. And, um, you know, since nobody sells music anymore, um, in terms of old way of selling music, we've pioneered a new way of selling music, which is we license our music for commercials, TVs, movies, and have a very um, successful licensing business.
0: Well, you have two of the best. I'm sure loads of your songs get used, but you have yeah, two, the two biggest. You have two of the best songs for that purpose. The first yeah. time I heard Twisted Sister was as a young kid. Well, the mm-hmm. two times really that I remember being exposed to your band was Pee Wee's Big Adventure uh and the film Road Trip which is by Todd Phillips who obviously went on to do the Joker movie and I wanna rocks in that and they were the two I think for me because for, I didn't have MTV or cable or anything as a kid so I never watched music TV so for me it was Pee-wee and Road Trip and I was like who are these you know hard hitting larger than life kind of kiss style comic book characters but in the real world
3: yeah in fact the mo- the song for Pee-wee was Burning Hell right that was yeah. the fake video we were making
0: yeah, D's on the car, isn't he? Like, yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs> With the fake video within the video, right within the within, as he's riding his bicycle.
0: What was he like, Paul Rubens? Did you get yeah. to
3: yeah? I mean, connect with, with the, him on a level. So we we arrived in in L.A. from Australia, jet lagged, and we're told you're in Pee Wee Herman's Big Adventure, and I didn't even know the character Pee Wee Herman. The other guys knew, but I didn't even know what the character was. I go, who is this guy? He's got a kid show. He talks with this funny voice. So we're on the set. And I'm standing and it's there. It's Tim
0: f- Burton's first film, right? As well? Yeah,
3: yeah. yeah. So we're standing on the set. And uh, Paul Rubens walks up to me in his suit. And I'm standing there as JJ French. I don't know what he's expecting. I, and he just walks up and goes, Hi, hi, I'm Paul. I go, oh, I'm John. It was just two guys on a set, on a movie set. He said, thank you very much for being in the movie. So, thank you very much for having us. He goes, oh, a big fan. I went, no, really, thank you. Thank you very much. Like that. That's exactly how the conversation went. So we proceed to get on the car, but this is such a New York story. This is such a real deep New York story. We're on the car, on the hood. D's on the hood. And they're filming the scene. the car is going down the street. And Pee Wee Herman's on his bicycle and he makes the turn. And Tim Burton is on the cherry picker with the with the cinematographer. And they come down to the hood. So you remember, D's in the front, mm-hmm. and me, AJ, Eddie, and Mark are behind him. And D's going, here, no evil, not just me. No whatever. Yeah. And all of a sudden, Tim Burton goes, cut. And they stop. The cameraman gets out of the cherry picker, walks up to the car, looks at me and says, are you John Segal?" And I go, yeah, he goes, he gives my street address. I go, yeah, he goes, I was on the Tenants Association with your mother back 10 years ago in the building. So he had lived in my apartment building in Manhattan and had been on the Tenants Association with my mother. That's only... Incredible. Only... And there's a joke in the band that I know everybody everybody knows me because I'm just a New York street guy. So like D's like D thought it was like to get his cameo. And he was like, you believe that? The freaking camera guy on the tennis association with JJ's mom. You know, that's how. So when people ask me my memory of that movie, that's the memory I have of that movie. You know, that's then I amazing. watch it and uh, it's fun to watch. You know, I still get checks. I get $5.69 a year. Warner Brothers. <laughs>
2: Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
0: I'd love to talk about you and D because I listened to the podcast that you did with him and it was such a beautiful chat. It was such... I mean, I advise anybody who's a big fan of Twisted Sister to go and immediately investigate that. It was just you know, the sound of two brothers, which I imagine is the nature of your relationship and what it's like after all these years, but really just in love with each other and being so complimentary towards each other and and happy about, you know, the things you've achieved together. And you're obviously very different people, but you share this common, like, let's crush the competition attitude. You seem to have bonded a lot over the years in that regard.
3: Yeah, I think we both... We were both predatory when it came to how to deal with other bands. And, um, you know, some people say that's not nice to say about other groups. And I go, fuck you. You don't understand. <laughs> I said, there's not it's a not single personal. band. I said, it's not a single band that doesn't go. We blew them off the stage. But that's what you do as a band. Do you want to blow somebody off the stage and that you, you live for that. This isn't a kumbaya moment. And, and you know what? And if it was back in the day, not for our, not for us, our, our agent made it very clear back in the bar days, you want to make more money. This is a rule of thumb. This is what I teach entrepreneurs about vision, about a decision to go for it. Um, before you're the Beatles, you better be better than the band next door. So I could proclaim all I want that Twist is the greatest band in the world, but I better be kicking the ass of the bands directly in front of me. Cause if I can't kick their ass, I ain't going to kick the Beatles ass either. Never going to happen. So we, we, the first thing we did was we looked around at all of the, the bands that were just above us. You know, we were making 300 a night. I wanted to make 400 a night or $500 a night. Now, how are they doing it? Exactly. How, how come they're making a couple hundred dollars more than me? Well, they're drawing more people. Why are they drawing more people? Because they're doing these things. Well, what, what are they going to do? So we started copying certain things that they did, whether it was a song list or this or that or whatever, you know? And the idea was to constantly, a leapfrog over the next band and draw more people. And then on the occasion where we got to play against the bands uh, in big enough clubs where there was two stages, we would do our best to, to play better than them so that we would steal their audience. It became very predatory. None of it was personal because the bands that in those days were wonderful friends of ours, but man, given, you know what they say when you're between the lines, you know, in sports, in sports, they go, what you do between the lines is, is, is what happens. It's competition. You go there to take another band out. Now, people may say, well, that's not music, man. That's like sports. Music is different. Bullshit. It's the same shit. It's a competitive business. It's a tough business. Why do you think the charts exist? I'm number one. I'm number two. I want to be number one. I want to be better than you. I think the key
0: thing as well is you're not actually out to harm the other band. What you're trying to do by step into them in that way is force them to up their game so the audience 100
3: percent. and if they up their game and kick your ass more power to them yeah you know our attitude live was kick our ass on
0: the field yeah
3: yeah kick our ass if you're better than us the audience benefits anyway so who cares right so the fact is that nobody was ever better than us ever it well in my brain there were three occasions in which I talk about it with Rob Halford because the first time we played with Priest, they. Were, I heard
0: that episode you did with Rob as well. I've had him <laughs> yeah. on this show. Isn't and, he just and, such a sweet man?
3: What a sweet guy. And, you know, he was blown away that we had done seven Priest songs. I was blown away that we did seven Priest. I knew we did a bunch of songs, but then I went back and looked at our roster of songs. What more can you say about how much you respect an artist than how many songs you do of that artist? You know, and I and said it's to twice
0: Rob, as much as any other. I said,
3: we did three ACDC songs, three this, three Ozzy. I said, we did seven Priest songs. Enough said. That's how much we revered Priest, you know. And when we finally played with him, you know, our fans were, you know, it was a great night for us. It was a great night for rock and roll because us and Priest, you know, the, the, Priest, was, the Priest was just enough. We were as good as we were, or as I thought we were, and we were really good. Um, Priest brought it because they, they were international touring band by 79. We were not. And I remember standing, I remember sitting on the balcony, watching KK down and going, JJ, you got to up it more you know you got to bring it more um they 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 and then i wanted to understand their sound and so we spoke to their guitar guy and we emulated their guitar sound that's how, and much how cool knew. of
0: him to give up that information as well like yeah. you know not everybody would but you obviously came to him with respect and appreciation and he passed yeah. on the knowledge as it were
3: yeah and it was pretty interesting too because he said well we don't use 100 watt marshals we use 50s you can get a better tone out of the thing. We got rid of our hundreds and switched to fifties. You know, there was using fifties and, and there's a thing to be said about certain setups and how synergistically they work, but they were totally cool. They were the nicest people in the world. They were just super nice. You know, th- those guys were like, and by the way, we were the same band comes to me for advice. I don't sit there and go, I'm not giving you advice because you're another band. I'll give you advice. I don't care. You know, at the end of the day, it's what you do with the advice anyway, you know, and can you, you bring it? So uh so that night they 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 were great and when we played with metallica eight times and one night they (laughs) kicked our ass and we had kicked their ass like seven times but on the eighth this time and and this is going to wind up on blabbermouth you know because blabbermouth (laughs) is just like they'll fucking take a quote why don't you take this quote well that's this is why i
0: love podcasts man is because it's harder to get those little clickbaity Bullshit headlines because it means they've actually got to listen to the whole conversation okay. to get so, them. Do you know what be, I mean?
3: Let's be clear. Metallic is a great band. Okay. They're great. And on this one particular night they kicked our ass in Amsterdam, I'm like, I'm looking at D D's looking at me like, what the fuck? Like up until that point, I thought they were interesting and I didn't quite understand it. And then the obviously the fans in Amsterdam were ahead of the curve in terms of thrash. Yeah. Right. This is 82 they were kind of ahead of the curve in terms of thrash and Metallica was a, th- was thrash. <coughs> they were, they were, they had already opened up for us in New Jersey and they didn't go over too well.
0: Are they, is this on the Kill 'Em All record, just on the first album? Yeah.
3: First album. They'd yeah. opened for us. And, and I remember I'm looking at him going, yeah, whatever. Decent. We did that eight dates with them. And the, and then I saw this one night was like the potential. I went, Oh my God. Oh boy. Okay. So they got their own thing going on. No, it's very different. We're much more of a commercial rock band than they were. They were phenomenal. They were extraordinary. And then one night with um Anvil. <laughs> wow, with Anvil. The, okay. Of all bands. And I talk wow. about that. This would in, have
0: been early on as well, though. Yeah. Yeah. And
3: I talk about that in their documentary. Yeah. Because lips that's a great me. documentary. And, and he is. goes, and he goes, you know, man, can you tell me something about it? And I said, Yeah, you kicked our ass one night. And I said, I sat there and went, Oh my god, we're getting our ass kicked by Anvil. I'm like, whoa, 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 what you know, it can happen you know, and it's good that it can happen because you need something to like, you know, reel it back in or make you, you know, like think about things But well, Anvil. Great guys, first of all. They're What's great. Like being on Rob...
0: stage with d as well? Because, you know, he obviously, one thing that I love about watching you guys perform is he would berate the crowd and, you know, really hand it to the audience as well, in a loving way, of course, but few people do that. And I think that's what makes him stand out as this kind of, you know, force to be reckoned with. He's like a fucking in your face front man, isn't he? And yeah, I love that about him.
3: I, I don't, yeah, but he's been, he did it for years. It was an art form that we learned in the bars. Yeah. So it wasn't a surprise. <laughs> you know, it was just unleashed on an international stage. <laughs> it
0: was Is all it of fun this... being on stage with a performer like that, though, and going into war with them?
3: Well, you know, when you do thousands of shows, after a while everything just melts away and you get to the core of what makes you a performer. So nothing particularly surprised, surprised me. I mean, we, we used to do the craziest shit in the bars that made the stuff that we did in the concert world, nothing. It was just more of a overly dramatic version of it. And D rose to the occasion. Of being able to take it and um, amplify it to a much bigger stage, and 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 it worked because if it didn't work, it would have been a disaster. You know, like there's plenty of of people that said we can do it in a small theater, but we can't really do it in the big in the big world. D manages. D has an incredible ability to create a 100,000 seat audience into an intimate club and talk to them personally. That is an art form. So as the band increased its popularity when the crowds got bigger and bigger and bigger, the approach to the intimacy of how the band's stage set evolves into the ability to own an audience is an art form. And you become so familiar with the art form that you can predict the ability to take the crowd in and have them buy into whatever you want to feed them during the course of the night. And I, I'm not saying it to be cynical. It is an art form. But when you see us in, in Belgium, if you see us at Hellfest in France, if you see us at Valken, if you see us at Bang Your Head, if you see us in South America at soccer stadiums, and you see a sea of people, 60,000, 70,000, 80,000, 100,000, and they are doing what you tell them to do, that's an art form. When he says jump, they jump. When he says scream, they scream. When he tells a joke and he wants you to laugh, you all laugh. I mean, it's, and no one does it better. So I don't, um, you know, how many, look, how many acts exist on this planet that a promoter will trust 100,000 people to? Think about this for a second. There's not that many. Not many, no. There's not that many acts that exist on this planet that a promoter is going to give 100,000 people to, knowing they better carry the night. So you have Iron Maiden, right? You've got Kiss. You've got Priest. um, ACDC. ACDC. I mean... We can get. I don't want to leave Guns anybody. And roses. Guns and Roses. Guns and Roses, but there's a handful. Metallica,
0: right? and then that's right. kind of it, isn't it?
3: Yeah, these are the acts that our promoter will say. Apart from, it's a hundred thousand people, and you're going to close the show, and you know, and and uh, and if you suck, it's going to bring the whole thing down, and you can't suck. So we are among the few bands that can entertain a hundred thousand people. So. The the question, someone would say to me, well, are you better than these bands? And my answer to that question is, it's not a matter of we're we're better. The answer is, we're good enough to make you think we're better. (laughs) We may not actually be better, but we're we're great enough entertainers so that you will walk away saying either we are or just say they were amazing. There's the reason why I stayed up till three o'clock in the morning in in fest or or bloodstock or or whatever wherever you know wherever it is i mean that you know uh very few people can claim the can claim that that's probably the greatest legacy we have at
0: this point. i think an interesting side note as well is all those other bands have way bigger catalogs have probably sold much more albums just because they've released so many more records. Mm -hmm. I think what you guys have is, you know, a less... Like, the arsenal of hits is much smaller, but what you have is the arsenal of tricks and power, um, which elevate you to that level. Would that be safe to say?
3: Well, we're we're entertainers. Yeah. Okay, I'll say this. Def Leppard has 12 songs they gotta play every night, okay? Kiss has got 10 songs they gotta play every night. Priest has got 10 songs. You know, you have to play those songs, right? First of all, you got to play them. There's just no way. And if you don't play them, you'll piss people off. So when people say to me, where's your, where's your new music? My answer to that would be, if I could post the 17 songs I was going to play and said, by the way, tonight, we're going to take one of these off and put a new song in, which one we take off? Not a single song would be taken off because they don't really care. So that's number one. I, so we understand. Yeah. we understand the 17 songs they want to hear okay and the order
0: in which they want to hear them
3: the order they want to hear them in the level of expertise of performing them we do them just like the record because that's what people want they may tell you they don't but they do that's what they want that's all fine these are rules of the game and if you want to change the rules you run the risk you want to put too many new songs in you run the risk most headlining acts of the new album out, make this mistake. Well, we're going to go on tour. We're going to play five songs from the new record. Within the first week, they're down to three songs from the new album. The second week, they're down to two songs from the new album. And for the rest of the tour, they're doing one song from the new album because people don't care. So you can think they care and your diehard fans will go, JJ, shut up. We want new music. But the fact is that 99.9% of them want what you give. So we give them exactly what they want, how they want it. And um, the formula has worked for us. So if it doesn't work for Guns N' Roses, it doesn't work for Priest, doesn't work for Ozzy, doesn't work for whatever works for us. Definitely works for us. I mean, we never suffered because we didn't have a bigger hit than we're not going to take it on any show ever. In fact, we give them exactly what they want. That's what they're there for. They're there to party. I mean, you have to understand how a crowd works. When you're looking at a hundred thousand people, you got to really understand what you're looking at here. Here's what you're looking at. The people in the front, in the first 50 feet, they love you no matter what, because they're that close. And that's an amazing experience for them. People in the back who are watching on screens, they're just happy they're there with their friends getting wasted because they're hearing repeater towers and you're watching you on a little tiny screen. So you have a band. You have this band that's center, a mid-band. And that mid band is usually where your sound man is also situated. That's the best sound because he's got the best sound. So you have to understand where he is. That's as good as you're going to sound right there. And that mid band right there, if you get that mid band, you win the front, you win the back. Because the backs just happy to be there. And the front, they're thrilled to be at the front. So you need to understand the mid band, you need to know who and if you're watching the show and the ebb and the flow, and you're on the stage, and you're feeling it and you are watching the response in the mid band, you lose the mid band, you've lost your night. End of story. And if that look, if that sounds too clinical to somebody, if they think that that's too business, well, you don't understand the business my responsibility at is a certain
0: level it is business right however yeah. you want to spin it it's still yeah. art and it's still entertainment and it's still rock and roll but with it with it with, when there's a certain level of pressure because the crowd is that big the pressure's on to deliver isn't it and, the, and you and need yeah. certain approaches yeah. to guarantee that
3: and the, pr- and the promoter is expecting you to deliver you got to make those fuckers happy it makes me happy to make D not <laughs> You know, it makes to make me happy to make them happy. D is the best MC master of ceremonies in the world. He understands the playing field. He gets it and he delivers every time. Uh and that's what, and so when you ask me, I've stood shoulder to shoulder with him thousands of shows to the point where it nothing surprises me. He D will never allow for failure, okay.
0: Well, there's that great segment in the documentary where you're on the tube and I love that story and just, you know, it's a great, I think, um, parable, if you will, for for rock and roll. And obviously you you, you have Lemmy come out and you think this is going to win him over and that doesn't work. And he has the thing where where he takes the makeup off and it's just that it's the refusal to submit defeat. Isn't yeah, it?
3: well, it's what I call two boats and a helicopter. How many, how many life preservers do you have to be sent before you grab it and you win? You know, and, and uh, um, it's understanding the two boats and the helicopter. So do you know the analogy, you know the story about two boats and a helicopter? Okay, so this is, what it, this is how it goes. A guy's in a house, and there's a flood. And he's a, the water's about to come into the window on the first floor. And he says, Lord, help me, Lord, help me. And a little Coast Guard boat comes along. Jump in the boat, we'll save you. He goes, no, the Lord will save me, the Lord will save me. So he doesn't get in the boat. An hour later, the water's up to the next floor. Lord, help me, Lord, help me. Coast Guard boat comes. Jump in the boat, we'll save you. No, the Lord will save me, the Lord will save me. Now the water's up to the roof, and it's just about to envelop the house. He's holding onto the weather vane. He goes, Lord, help me, Lord, help me. All of a sudden, a helicopter comes down with a hook. Grab the hook, we'll save you. No, the Lord will save me. A wave comes, kills him. Now he's at the gate to St. Peter. St. Peter says, why are you here? The guy says, how'd you let me die? St. Peter said, schmuck, I sent two boats and a helicopter. What the fuck do you want me to do? <laughs> so it's like, it's, it's understanding your two boats and a helicopter. So Dee pulled out the helicopter <laughs> at that last, that last thing when the other things didn't work. And because he is innately a, a great performer, and that's why it, it worked out the way it does. And yes, we are a family. Come hell or high water. If something was to happen to his family, you know, his daughter got stuck in Peru recently um, because of COVID and because of the f- canceling flights. Her, his daughter was was on a journey in Peru, and I found out about it. I know people at the State Department through my parents' connections, and we were helping them through the State Department locate his daughter. They did through a confluence of many things. I'm not sure if that particular connection was the one that delivered his daughter, but the point is he could make that phone call. That's the point. I need help, you know. Dee's mom tragically died a couple of years ago, like tragically, got hit by a car, perfectly healthy woman, lands on her head, goes into a coma, a month later, she passes. I've known his mom since 1976. The whole band got together, went to the service. Eddie's son died, you know, tragically, and we all got together, went to the service. I mean, this is where your family comes into play, like that, like at the end of the day, Um, You rely on your brothers. We've seen things that most people don't know about, can't understand. And it's unique. But then again, what's the difference between that and Priest? Okay, Rob has been with Glenn, KK, right, for years. Ozzy's been with Geezer, you know, Bill Ward for years. I I think the better question is, did any of us guys in bands like Priest, uh, uh, Ozzy, Twisted, motorhead alice cooper do you think any one of us in 1973 thought that we would still be still be business?
0: chained to these people for life
3: <laughs> yeah did any of us yeah and that's the interesting question yeah and and will that because it's ever the family
0: happen? you didn't choose isn't it
3: and 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 will that ever happen again will that phenomenon of entertainment and bonding ever happen again like that i don't know
0: did the did the PMRC incident hurt the band and and slow you down and was that a contributing factor to the end that that first time around? I'm, I, that, that was a huge I, thing, wasn't it? Yeah, not to me. To me,
3: the the band was already on the on its ropes. So to me, I wanted as much publicity as possible. So I had a much more cynical view of it. I wasn't like up in arms. Oh my God, they're challenging the First Amendment rights or whatever. I wasn't. I was like, will this sell any more records? 'Cause you know, D went out on the limb and said, Oh, I'm straight. I don't do drugs. I'm a Christian. I'm a family man. I want nothing destroys our reputation more than you telling people how straight you are. <laughs> you know, in my Rob Halford interview. What mm. do I say to Rob? I said, Here's the difference in you and me, Rob. It's the I role said, reversal, isn't it? I said, yeah, You're afraid yeah. that people find out you're gay and destroy your reputation. I'm afraid that people find out I'm not gay and destroy my reputation. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's interesting though, because you're obviously or at least you you come from a lot more of a politicized background and upbringing with your mum having the job she had and you being involved with the civil rights marches and protest movements and stuff and I guess I can't remember which maybe it was the Don McLean podcast you did which was also incredible I think you were talking to him about how it wasn't until Trump that you ever saw a place for politics in music you were always of the opinion that entertainment and politics should be separate things people come to rock shows to escape that stuff and actually it was only when Trump came into power that it became unavoidable for you and you had to sort of step up and use your platform to use it for, you know, a political yeah. podium.
3: Well, he um, he, made it, he made it nearly impossible to stay on the sidelines. It, it, it became, but then again, you know, it depends on how much you have to risk. A lot of artists I know who didn't like Trump didn't want to say anything because they were afraid half their audience likes Trump. And by the way, half my audience probably likes him okay
0: you, you'd stop touring by this point though right yeah and so it didn't Thankfully. really matter because, <laughs> yeah, yeah. because you 95- don't have to go out and play bible belt america and- right
3: 95 and of, of 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 non-americans hated him so it didn't matter to us i mean we're we're playing in europe we're playing in south america trump was hated everywhere yeah so uh you didn't have to even say it nobody brought it up people would go here's what they would say we feel so bad for you that you have this guy that's how i've never had people tell me they feel bad for me People may have not liked Reagan. Maybe they didn't like Bush. They never said, you poor soul. I feel so bad for you. But with Trump, that was the attitude. Was, I feel bad that you have this idiot. And we would just go, well, you know, that's why we're here. <laughs> so we play South America. How much he insulted Hispanics like crazy. Um, he alienated all of our allies in Europe. So uh, as far as the, the the press in Europe portrayed him as an idiot, the, the press in, in Europe, didn't like Trump at all. So unless you were making a pro Trump statement, I guess the assumption was you didn't like him and it never became a controversial. And don't forget, we ended in 2016 when he was elected anyway, but it yeah. wouldn't have. I, well, I
0: remember being sat in the pub with you and D the night we were going to do the Q and a, and I think he'd like literally just been elected. And obviously because of Dee's connection from the, the apprentice, I think at first, cause he didn't know what a horrible man he was going to be quite yet at this stage. I think he was just like, oh, God, uh, you know, people are going to keep asking me what I think about this now because I was well, on that show.
3: A statistic that you may not be aware of with Trump, which is a lot of people are not aware of this statistic, but Trump is from New York City. He was born in yeah, New York City. Yeah, of course. You've so the, so the, the known that guy forever. Yeah, we've known him forever and we've watched the, the Trump show for years and we always thought it was just funny and buffoony, and never, never took it seriously. But if you look at the history of uh, presidential elections. Um, the guy who wins always wins his hometown because you're the favorite son. That's what you just do. You could lose every state in the in the country, but you're gonna win your home state and you're gonna win your hometown because that's local what, boy
0: done good, isn't
3: it? Local boy done good. So here Trump wins the presidency. So you would think New York City, because his name is everywhere and all these buildings, New York City would vote for Trump. So well, of course, New York City did not vote for Trump. So how bad did he lose New York in 2016 to Hillary? Well, you could say, well, he lost 60-40 no well he lost 70 30 no well he lost 80 20 no he lost 90 10 no he lost 92 to 8 like that's how wow yeah, that's how much people in new york city hated wow. this wow that's now, not could, a
0: widely known statistic yeah. either is it as you say
3: no he couldn't be elected dog catcher new york city so i mean he and then and it make things even worse he was actually born in jamaica Estates, queens that's the actual birthplace jamaica right. states yeah. go into the record books and look jamaica states queens you would figure he would win jamaica estates queens a little community in queens well he win eighty twenty, he lost okay so so um he was it says hated. it all doesn't it well he was hated in new york so i say to people okay great so he convinced somebody in the Midwest, but we saw this as a, as a disaster and, uh, and it too proved to be a disaster. So when fans who are Trump supporters are irate, oh, Twisted Sister, you suck. Trump is the greatest. Uh, okay, whatever, you know, we, we saw him for what he was and, and we called it for what it is. Incredibly divisive, horribly divisive. He set the country on an awful course. Horrible well, this is what I, I wanted time. to ask
0: you, is, is how long and, and what do you think the long-term implications and effects of his reign will be? You know, obviously he's gone, but the stuff that he's put in place, that's going to take a while longer, isn't it? To fix. Well, he
3: established, he established uh, an acceptability of authoritarianism and fascism, which is horrible to witness. Um, it's everything I never thought I'd ever see a communist-loving fascist. It's really what he is because his buddies were Putin and the and, uh, Korean guy. So he's a communist-loving fascist, which is interesting bed, bedfellows because you know communists and fascists don't get along. But he's a—he loves dictatorships, he loves autocracies, he loves—he um, loves all of the the buzzwords that go along with it. His racist dog whistles are disgusting. I mean, he's unleashed a level of um, racism that I never thought I'd see. But in a way, maybe I should be grateful that it exists. There's a functional racism in America, which is huge. Well, and it reminds
0: uh, you, right, that it's still out there. I guess maybe we were of the the misconception that we've progressed and evolved,
3: and, yeah, into a, and and into a post-racial society. Yeah, but post-racial this has just society. revealed
0: that's not the case, hasn't it?
3: Yeah, I think it has, and it's it's um it's sad. It's sad. His authoritarianism, his fascism, his threats to democracy, are astonishing i mean terrifying i've never seen i never thought i'd see in my day the threat to democracy that i've seen what he what what his ilk has has done so i it's impossible sociologists are kind have of a field day mm. trying to figure out the long-term effects i don't know the long-term effects are
0: well you've lived through so much right and <laughs> i mean right now is It just seems to i mean maybe you can tell me you've got more experience on me but right now just seems to be the craziest time to be alive with covid and brexit and trump and all these things i mean it's just next level insanity isn't it
3: it is crazy but the 60s the civil rights the civil rights um struggles in the 60s were unbelievable we had cities in flames and um i mean you don't know this because you wouldn't be aware but there was a mayor in Newark, New Jersey, Anthony Imperiali, back in the 60s. And he was an incredible racist. And he bought a tank, a government tank, and brought it up on the North Ward in Jersey on the street to keep the N-word out of the North Ward in Newark, New Jersey. Wow. And, and 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 we all knew this. You know, back in those days, uh, um, uh, dogs attacked civil rights workers crossing over the bridges in, in, in southern cities selma alabama civil rights were attacked with 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 dogs um beatings Um, we saw you know uh we saw uh, and then of course there's the black panthers the black panther shootouts i lived through all of that um meanwhile there's
0: moon landings and things going on in the background
3: well yes and the beatles are the soundtrack of the music you know I mean well, we, well that's
0: that's one thing I've noticed is the music at that time was reflecting and distilling and, and commenting on what was going on. And I don't feel like that's the case. With with this time we're in, there should be so much anger and frustration and and do you know what I mean, kind of aggressive confrontational art being created. Yeah, but and back I'm, then, I'm not and, seeing it.
3: And back then, as I said to Don McLean, we were all united. We all hated the war. We all hated Nixon, we all hated Johnson, we all hated these guys. We all hated him there was no you could say the war sucked at a show and nobody would argue the point with you like nobody's Mm -hmm. sitting there defending the war you can't say that anymore um the the you don't know where people stand you know know? where people stand and you don't know why certain people of certain uh of certain socioeconomic strata and educational um development why they can see think the QAnon is okay for example why they would believe Mm -hmm. any of that nonsense it's just uh the conspiratorial crap um pushed by Marjorie Taylor Greene and QAnon and and the racist fringe of the Republican party is disgusting. and I don't think the democrats did a particularly good job in combating the the stupidity and the um the name calling that uh, that that Trump used. I mean Trump constantly said we're socialists and communists and I would have hit him back and called you a bunch of racist fascists. I would have the minute he said it I was running the Democratic I would have said, the racist, fascist, Republican Party. I would have repeated it because all Trump does is it's a it's a technique. Trump is a technique performer. He, learns, well, he, he learned does, from- He, he did he what le- you
0: guys did, right? And this is- a, Yes. Bear, bear with me on this link, is when you would buy the radio space to play segments of twisted songs, to embed it into people's consciousness and make them believe that they were hearing popular hits- he did a similar thing in a much more cynical, evil way, didn't he? Yes, he did. Drilling into the subconscious, these and you, thoughts. Yeah,
3: and, and the only way you can fight it is you have to fight it fire with fire. And you should yeah. have immediately, the minute he started, say, so automatically, well, the fascist, racist Republican Party. Excuse me, Senator. Was it, the fascist, racist, Republican Party. Excuse me, Senator. Was it, the fascist, racist, Republican Party. Yeah. And then you repeat it to the point where they either stop or people start to go, the fascist, racist, Republican Party, not the communist, socialist, Democratic Party. So he was effective in that. That 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 that, which is by the way a technique used in professional wrestling. And who's his manager? The former it was his, one of his campaign managers was the former head of the WWE. I mean, I've been watching wrestling for years. This is race baiting. Um, <laughs> it's, it's technique taken from pro wrestling. I hate to be that it's, cynical. It's
0: it's not intelligent or subtle, is it?
3: <laughs> no, it's not. And it's understanding who your crowd is. And you keep repeating. You keep repeating the same. Dogmatically. You know how he kept saying the the election's being stolen, the election's being stolen. The minute he said it, you know what I would have done if I was running the Democratic Party? I would have said, start saying Trump's gonna steal the election. Trump's gonna start the election. Like the minute he started go, by the way, if Trump wins, he'll have stolen that election. I think we have gotta stop the steal right away. You have to neutralize this garbage because if you don't neutralize it, you normalize it. When you normalize it, people think it's truth. You keep repeating the same crap over and over again. Well, fake people news as well. Truth.
0: He he seems to have gotten by so far with just that ridiculous little you know, again, there is a lot of news which isn't truthful, but he twisted that and used it to his own ends, didn't he?
3: Yeah. Well, yeah. I didn't understand. I didn't know until recently that the BBC, what the BBC has a rule about news, which is why you're different than we are in America. You may not be aware. The BBC's, I, I don't know what the rule is, but you, the news has to be neutral.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: Televised news in England has to be neutrally presented. It can't be presented as an opinion piece, okay? Where you guys excel in the garbage is in your newspapers. Yes. So in your newspapers, (laughs) you can be as tabloid as you want. Yeah. You can make any accusation that you want. You You can destroy anybody's reputation at will if you choose to. But when it comes to Big Brother, you can't. Whereas we in America can via Fox News. Mm -hmm. and other news sources that totally distort. And I'm not going to tell you that the other side doesn't do its own agenda. Everyone has an agenda, (laughs) but the BBC seems to have figured out a way to at least be neutral where people don't attack the news from BBC as fake news. Am I correct?
0: Yeah. I mean, that is the, that's the caveat under which they operate. Sure. And what's great as well is there is still this sort of worldwide perception that you know there's objective truth being told on that platform which is one of the few things i think we have still to be proud about because you know it's not been great over here obviously as you'll well know from from sam and you know we have our own issues at the moment with brexit just causing some and for touring musicians like the, the the long-term implications forget covid the long-term implications for touring musicians of a certain level um coming out of the uk is just devastating and it's it's a really challenging time for creatives of all walks of life at the moment with the pandemic but then we in the uk have this added situation as well um true. you guys got out at the right time <laughs> we safe, always right? seem to get
3: out at the right time we, we broke up before before the whole handband thing dissolved we walked away a year yeah. before a year before nirvana two years before nirvana we got out so anyway i have to i gotta skate, man
0: Yeah, this has been such a good chat, mate. Thank you so much. Um, The podcast is great. And I can't wait to hear more episodes. I've already delved into, I think, four I've done in the last few days. And I mean, getting to chat to Don McClay must have been incredible for you. Who have you got coming up? Have you got any exciting guests coming up? Well, you can I tell have us ce- about.
3: Yeah, I have celebrity chef Michael Lomonico who's coming up. I've got Brian Koppelman who created the TV show Billions. Do you guys get Billions over there?
0: I haven't yet? seen it, but we may well it's, do.
3: It's brilliant. But Brian Koppelman was also an AR guy who signed one of my first artists that I managed back in 1990. And Brian is a brilliant writer brilliant screenwriter brilliant producer director the rounders movie i don't know if you ever saw rounders oceans mm-hmm. 13 he wrote screenplay. Yeah, yeah yeah he's yeah brilliant. so he's a friend he's coming up um donnie Wahlberg from uh, new kids wow. on the block yeah uh he just signed on this week so i'm going to get that um i've got a i've got uh um doc mcgee Kiss's oh, manager oh
0: that's a dream guest right there i got i got doc next.
3: i got doc next week um, you're a real natural
0: want, for it you're a real natural for it
3: i want managers because it's called it's called the french it's called the jj french connection beyond the music it's more than just music i don't know did you listen to my authors jane green and jenny boyd did you listen to them you know, so okay They're Not british yet, authors no. i will British though. female authors best-selling authors jenny boyd uh jenny boyd is sisters patty boyd who was george harrison's and Jerry clapton's wife jenny was married to mick fleetwood um wow. her book is it her book is incredible um, she talks about her days with the Beatles, her days of Fleetwood Mac. Uh, she was also the inspiration for the song Jennifer Juniper by Donovan. And she's a muse for that, which I think it's interesting. You have two sisters who are muses to some of the most famous rock songs ever. You know, so you get yeah, sisters. Yeah. So that, that's great. There's a lot of artists up on the site. There's many coming on board. Um, the list is I'm going to have Eddie Kramer the producer Eddie Kramer who's done work with Zeppelin Hendrix the Beatles you name it he produced our first demos he's going to be an upcoming uh, guest which is which should be fun um I have a lot of wish list people who's um,
0: top of that wish list top 2 or 3
3: well right now I want Brett Michaels on yeah I want to talk to him about Poison and about uh, yeah, blowing them off the stage, and and what's going and what's going on. Plus, he has a chronic health issue. I do as well. I, we can bond on on that level, you know. Um, there's a, a, from Slipknot. I may have a, one or two members of Slipknot coming on, which um, which is always interesting to me because that's the next that's the the, the generation of current headlining acts. They're very few. Mm. Yeah. Slipknot. And by the way, you could add Slipknot's name to that list of short list of yep. bands that can headline you know event sevenfold and something. now let's not forget that ramstein as well yeah. ramstein um i loved having mike portnoy on because he's such a great person and and you know what a great drummer i mean what he did for aj filling in was extraordinary um there's a, a lot of great guests and a lot coming up and just at the jj french connection uh beyond the music it's on uh, spotify it's on apple it's on podcast one uh, my book uh twisted business we're not going to take it it's going to be out sometime in august and maybe i'll come back and we'll talk about the book once you read it
0: we amazing yeah i'd love that yeah hopefully we can do it in person when you're coming over to visit sam and lucy and i'll read the book and we'll meet up in bath great That'd Be man. cool wonderful thank you so much for your time i truly appreciate it and and i've really really enjoyed this we went deep and yeah i loved it i hope it was all right for you as well
3: yeah it was great thank you
0: I'll see Thank you soon. I'll let you know when it goes up. And um, until next time, man, take care.
3: By the way, I didn't realize I wasn't on video the whole time.
0: <laughs> no, should, you weren't. No. You, should, you I, should have said something. I was going to say at the start, are you going to join me on video? And then we kind of just went straight into it. I was like, oh my, God. Ah. So I'm sitting there going, my God, the line <laughs> is
3: going right through it. And you fucking, and, and you missed it after I put my fake platinum albums up for you and everything. You <laughs> oh, know? man. Oh, yeah. I
0: was like, is he going to join me at any point? That's amazing. Well, here we are right at the end. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, there okay see <laughs> luckily it's only audio anyway and i tend to only use the visual for little clippets but i can use this m bit as the visual <laughs> clip because i was like maybe i'll just switch my video off as well because i didn't know whether you were even no. like looking or anything oh my god i feel like an idiot <laughs> <laughs> okay all right well no that didn't affect the conversation at all the conversation was great man all right you take care man. <laughs> bye-bye have a good day all right see you soon <laughs>